Welcome to the Jungian Theology Podcast, Analytical Psychology Seminars from the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago. Today we have an extra-long seminar, Walking the Way of Individuation with Ken James, Ph.D. This episode is the first 100 minutes of the seminar at the Path is the Goal, Walking the Way of Individuation. Any regular subscribers to this podcast by now know that we've been on hiatus for about three months. I didn't make an announcement beforehand. We're always busy in the spring because we have our Founders Day Symposium, and there's always a lot to do leading up to that. And after that, we started doing some work on our website, and we're doing a whole remodel, so that's that's also been what I've been working on, and I haven't had time to make a podcast. But here it is. Uh, so thank you for your patience, and I hope you enjoy today's seminar. Jung called individuation the method by which a person becomes a separate unity or whole. In Jungian psychology, individuation has sometimes been called the goal of the analytic process. This terminology can be misleading since individuation is not a product, but a process by which we are engaged throughout our lives. The mysterious process of individuation is the focus of this course. Engaging lecture and reflections on Jung's collected works provide an understanding of the nature of individuation as well as ways to enhance and foster that process. It was recorded in 1997. Ken James, Ph.D., is Director of Student Services at the Laboratory School, University of Chicago. His areas of expertise include dream work and psychoanalysis, archetypal dimensions of analytic practice, divination and synchronicity, hypnosis as a therapeutic medium, and eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. He has done postdoctoral work in music therapy and theology, and uses these disciplines to inform his work as a Jungian analyst. For more information about him, visit soulworkcenter.org. We also have links to the complete series in the show notes, as well as to other seminars by Ken James. And now here's the lecture. The topic for this course is, I think, the most important one in Jungian psychology, and that is individuation. Virtually every other uh, school of psychology, especially depth psychology, that has given rise to a form of treatment has done so from the perspective of pathology, that there has to be a pathological situation or state that the person who is coming for the psychological work wants to be relieved of. And a test as to whether or not the given method of treatment works is whether or not the person's symptoms are relieved. Jung completely erased that perspective. He didn't, I won't even say that he changed it, he just obliterated it. Because for Jung, doing psychological work had to do with becoming whole. It didn't have to do with ameliorating symptoms. In fact, for Jungians, what is called in other schools of psychology a symptom is considered to be a message that needs to be decoded, much as a dream or a slip of the tongue or a projection needs to be decoded. 
And this is very important because whereas other schools of psychotherapy and analysis seek to cure, Jungian psychology teaches us that we have to understand. And the goal is not cure. The goal is to become who we are, undivided. And the term that Jung used to explain this is individuation. And in that term lies the secret of understanding Jungian psychology. If we write it down just as a word, individuation, it sounds like a nice sort of jargony term. This is what we're seeking. But Jung was very clear that what his psychology was attempting to do was to help people to become individuals and that we actually are individuals. And we have to work to bring all of the parts together. So that individuation is the process by which we come to the point where we recognize our divided state and then seek to <coughs> ameliorate that situation. Jung never taught, and there is no orthodox Jungian uh, teaching, that when you finish a course of psychotherapy or working on yourself for a finite amount of time, that you are then an individual and you're done. Jung wasn't even altogether clear that the process stopped with what we call death. The fact is, individuation is a process, and what we can hope to do is engage in that process in a meaningful and deep way. Hence, we have the title of the course, The Path is the Goal, Walking the Way of Individuation. It isn't something that we want to achieve. When people come to see me in analysis, a, a fairly sensible question at the beginning is, how long will this take? <clears throat> and I always get them. Because my answer is, well, if you're lucky, all your life. And they kind of look like, oh, God, he wants to put a wing on the house. <laughs> and then I explain to them, but you're not always going to be seeing me or, or necessarily anybody all your life. But what we want to do is start a process by which you can engage in your life through the method of seeking meaning. And that process ought to continue all your life. And that's how we become individuals. That's the path of individuation. So tonight's topic is the concept of individuation and how it's related to the structure and dynamics of the psyche. Now, this is a level one course, but as I look around the room, there are people of all kinds of different backgrounds. So I would hope that we would all help one another because when we have people of different, um, in different positions of understanding, some of the work that we're doing might seem elementary and, and for other people it might seem a little bit too rapid. I want you to be sure that you can ask, feel free to ask if I say something that's unclear or if you know something that might help uh, amplify something that I'm saying from your own studies of Jung, please feel free to share it with the group because that way we can form a group and maybe participate together in our own individuation. One of the dangers about being a human being is that we have the illusion of being unified. I have a single body, so far as my sensory organs can tell me. I have a name, and pretty much, except for nicknames or, or variations on it, everybody calls me by my name. 
And there's a lot, you know, I live in one place and I kind of do the same thing day in and day out and there's people who know me and I relate to them. And all of this contributes to the illusion that we actually are a single person. We're one person. Because everybody seems to relate to us that way. The fact is, my relationship to my life is more like episodes in a TV show than it is one continuous line. I drop in, like every Tuesday night at 6.30, and get the latest installment, and then I'm gone. And that happens a lot, and that happens to all of us. And in fact, we are quite uh, satisfied imagining that we are only one person, an individual, when actually we're a lot of things, all rolled into one. Now, here again, you know, this is really a rah-rah Jung course, so you're going to have to get used to it. A lot of other schools of psychology would look at this as something very dangerous, and they would call it splitting. And they would say, you know, this is a very, this is a very risky thing to be uh, admitting, because you're admitting that, in fact, you're, you're multiple. There's all kinds of things in you running around. And this is precisely what Jung would say, that, in fact, we are. And the reason we are isn't because somehow we failed, but it is constitutive to the structure and dynamics of psyche as experienced. Now, when we begin, when we start out and we're born, we are completely, we are completely uh, congruent with, enclosed in, whatever word you want to use, with something called the self. And that self with a big S. I have to be careful how I say that. The big S self, not the big some other word. S-E, you know. Big S self. And the self completely, there are jokes occasionally. And it is a test. Whoever laughs. <laughs> okay. Uh, the self is never referred to in Jungian theory as myself or yourself or herself or him. It's always the self. And at the level of the self, all of us are connected. This is a particularly controversial aspect of Jung's theory, but it's there. And the existence of the self in the human personality is like individuation, a constitutive and distinctive difference between Jungian psychology and any other school of psychology. And it's considered by some schools of psychology to be an embarrassment that Jung would be so bold as to say this. Because God forbid, this gets us into the realm of mysticism and spirituality. And of course, we all know, if we're good Freudians, that that's simply a sublimation and has no reality. Jung did not believe that, however. Now, in the process of um, in the process of living, the infant, this is a state of infancy now, so I'll use green. In the process of being an infant, once we are born, all of the needs that were taken care of even before we knew we had needs, when we were in the womb, now become something of a problem, don't they? Because I feel hunger. I feel temperature change. I hear noises unbuffered by fluid and the body of my mother. All of these things create a situation on the infant that lead to a certain level of stress. And the infant is brought to the point 
of deintegration. Now, this is not to be confused with disintegration, which is a pathological developmental process. Deintegration is not pathological. It's the way things are. Because no matter how good our parents are, we, as infants, are going to sense the hunger, sense that it's a little bit too cold or a little bit too hot, sense that we're wet or need to be changed before our parents. So there will be a span of time when we will begin to feel that we're falling into disequilibrium or we're beginning to deintegrate. And gradually what happens is this sort of heavenly containment within the self begins to break down. And the self, instead of remaining nice and closed, gets little breaks in it. And little bits of the self ping out. Okay? And these are called deintegrates of the self. So, these are the de-integrates of the self. Now, everybody has to go through this. So there'll be little bits of the self popping out for various reasons, okay? All because the infant experiences, uh, whoops, wrong color. The infant experiences that the homeostasis is somehow being um, disordered. It's somehow being threatened. What the infant, of course, doesn't realize, and what many adults don't realize, is that we have the capacity to reestablish this homeostasis. So there's a little bit of stress, and that leads to deintegrates. Now, these deintegrates are what crystallize in the deep psyche or the collective psyche as archetypes. And archetypes is another one of those terms that we find in Jungian psychology. And it refers to organizing principles deep, deep in what is called the unconscious. The archetypes take many forms and have many images. And every mythic system and every religion that we have knowledge of is an attempt to express an, a particular understanding of the archetypes. But they are only archetypal images. The archetypes themselves are much deeper and cannot be imaged. And these archetypes, or deintegrates of the self, become part of our hard wiring. And what they do is they allow us to organize the world in a certain way that is more or less congruent with the way everybody organizes the world. I say more or less because obviously this is a dynamic process and the deintegrates are not necessarily going to be identical from person to person. Now some of these deintegrates, some of these archetypes have names, huh? Like the Great Mother. Um, another one would be Shadow. Another one is anima, animus. We'll talk about these terms. 
But the point is that even though we all sort of have the same set, they're not all going to have exactly the same quality. So that each of us will be actually experiencing a world that's slightly different. Yes? Yeah. I wouldn't go that far. Because I wouldn't go that far because we don't have the capacity to do that kind of research. But there's enough that Jung spoke about metaphorically, <clears throat> for example, about uh, chemical changes that we're now able to understand actually has a uh, biochemical basis as well that I wouldn't be surprised down the road if we didn't discover. But we're not prepared to say that just because of the state of our knowledge. But the fields of psychiatry and neurology do, do show that there are now biochemical and structural um, correlates to Jungian things, and I wouldn't be surprised eventually if we didn't find that for this too. Uh, and don't worry, we're going to put this in a geographic model too, so we're just now beginning to talk about why it is that we end up being all a piece, you know, rather than being together or completely individual. Now, in addition to this happening at the level of the self, the child, as it exists in time, is beginning to get personal experience. And this personal experience has to be organized in some way. This personal experience is usually feeling toned in nature, especially in infancy. Because what hits us as infants has to be something that matters and we're not going to notice it. As adults, this changes because we have concepts about good behavior, we, you know. But an infant doesn't. It just knows, does it hurt? Is it pleasant? And so the infant organizes its world according to feeling-toned um, sets of ideas and images. Now, these feeling-toned sets of ideas and images, I'll use green here, are over here in personal experience. So here's one, you know. Here's another one, here's another one. And gradually, these feeling-toned experiences are going to be related to one or another of these archetypes. And we begin to get certain predispositions for experience. We lose our openness to experience. Now these things that sort of are related to the archetypes are called, in Jungian theory, complexes. And a complex is a feeling tone set of ideas and images with an archetypal core. Now here again, this is a major distinction between the way complex, the word complex is used in Jungian psychology and the way it's used in other schools of psychology. And it is ironic that other schools of psychology use the term complex to mean a pathological state or a condition that needs to be gotten rid of because that's a total distortion and it isn't even true to the, to the fact, historical fact, that the term complex originated with Jung. And that was the one thing after Jung broke with Freud that Freud was willing to admit did come from Jung. There was that one thing that Jung did that was good and it was to develop the complex theory. So complexes in themselves are not pathological. Complexes 
our, the way our personal experience coagulates relative to the archetypes that are in a deeper layer of psyche, the collective layer of psyche. Now, not only are complexes not pathological, although they can lead us to pathological or um, negative behavior, not only are complexes not pathological, we couldn't live without them. Now, I was in college during the 60s, and that was the time, among other things, when everyone was into self-actualization. And uh, the psychology of Abraham Maslow, which is a very sophisticated and sound psychological theory, was really, everyone loved Maslow. And I remember there'd be these movies about what it meant to be self-actualized, and I guess what it meant is you get this dreamy look in your eyes and give flowers to everybody. This was the 60s. I never made it, and I thought I was failing. Because, you know, there were these bliss queens and bliss kings walking around, and I'm just trying to put my socks on. But what I discovered when I discovered Jung was that that really would be a shame. If we would be so psychologically whole, whatever that means, that we would lose even our complexes, we would become like hands without fingerprints. You're not able to pick things up. There's no, there's no distinctiveness to it. And I think we've learned over the past 30-some years that that really probably isn't the way we want to go. But that was an idea, and that contributed to the idea that if you have complexes, or if you project, you're projecting like that's bad. Yeah, I'm living. You know, I'll probably project even after I'm dead. So this in itself is not a problem that I'm projecting. Believing the projection is the problem, not the projection. <coughs> now, the reason why, another reason why complexes are not in themselves pathological is this. After the self kind of spurts out all these deintegrates, there's still going to be something left. So there will be the self. We still have the big S self, which is the organizing principle of psyche. And there's a very important complex that forms out here that is the outpicturing of the deep self. And that complex is called the ego. which is the Latin word for I. The ego is the complex of consciousness. Whenever I say I know something, it's the ego talking. And the archetypal core of the ego is the self. Now, early development exists so that as the self deintegrates and as complexes are formed, one major complex gains ascendancy over all the others, and that is the ego. And the first phase of life from birth to about the age of three or four is all about the birth and strengthening of the ego complex. Yes? Uh, is the ego the same as the personality? That's a good question. The ego is an aspect of the personality, but there are other parts of psyche that contribute to the personality. And Jung wasn't clear just exactly where the personality was. At, at Sometimes he felt the personality was a complex of all of the complexes, including the ego, so it would be a, a combination of what you're consciously aware of and what you're unconscious of. 
Other times he equated it with the ego. Other times he equated it with only part of the ego, depending on, on what he was talking about. Um, and there is no required reading for this class, but if you look at the bottom of the syllabus, Memories, Dreams, and Reflections, which is Jung's autobiography, and then Volume 7 in the Collected Works, Two Essays in Analytical Psychology, are very good to read to look at to answer these sorts of questions, where he talks about things like the mana personality and what does that mean. Because the concept of personality differs in Jungian theory from other theories. So much so that there are some textbooks on personality theory that don't even include Jung in the index, which I think is kind of goofy. But um, we will have more to say about that also as the course goes on. The whole early period in the child's life is all about creating a strong ego. So that gradually out of all of this muck comes the ego. And generally when that begins to make itself known, that's when the child becomes more and more difficult. And of course then that never stops. Because then you grow up and it makes childhood look like a dream. All right. So we've gotten to the point where we have the ego. Now something very interesting happens because the ego, because it is such an efficient tool for the exploration of what we call the outer world or reality, a situation develops like this. All of this stuff is forgotten. And we imagine that we are the ego. That's all there is. And this is the state of uh, behaviorism. They wouldn't use the word ego. But it's the idea that what I'm aware of is all there is what I'm conscious of. The illusion, of course, is that the ego is constant. And Jung, uh, Freud, made a mistake, I called Jung Freud. Freud uh, sort of fell into this error in a way because in Freudian theory, the ego is a structural aspect of psyche. In Freudian theory, psyche breaks down into three parts, the ego, the id, and the superego. And the ego is a structural part of psyche, meaning it's a given that it will be there. In Jungian theory, this is not so. The ego is constructed. It's a complex. The ego has the illusion of unity. It has the illusion that it's all there is. <clears throat> when in fact, the ego comes and goes. Yes? Piagetian theory is a theory of the coming of age of ego. That's right. Yes. Even though Piaget was well grounded in Jungian theory, and Piaget actually his first analyst was Sabina Spielrein, who analyzed, among other things, with both Freud and Jung. So. History of Jungian theories are rather interesting, if checkered field. Uh, 
same with well Erickson not quite as much as Piaget because Erickson was building uh, on Freud and in those theories well, Piaget not so much but Erickson certainly there's a talk of strengthening of the ego and so on and so forth but the idea of the ego as being a structural given in psyche is very much present in those theories. Well, if it looks like a piece of patchwork or another piece of work, sometimes you have the surface filled in mm-hmm. because you've met your developmental stages, right. and another time you wouldn't. And that is, in those theories, the translation of what in Jungian psychology we talk about when we say sometimes the ego just is not even there. Right. When we fall into deep unconscious complex acting out. Yes. The ego is constructed from life experience. Right. The ego is constructed from life experience, which forms a complex that is related to the archetypal core called the self. The constancy of the self and the centrality of the self in what is called the collective unconscious, and we'll get to that in a moment, is mirrored in outer conscious life by the ego. So the ego, what's interesting is the ego derives its being its integrity, if there is any, from its connection to the archetypal core, which is the self. But at a certain point, and this seems to be developmentally necessary, the ego severs its tie, at least in its own little awareness, from anything but itself. We still plugged in? All right, are we moving? Great. All right, we're all wired up here. So that the ego um, develops the illusion of separateness and the illusion of unity. And that's where all hell breaks loose. Because we lose a sense of connection, and in fact, developmentally, we have to. Because what has to happen developmentally is that the ego has got to develop mechanisms by which it comes to know the psyche in a different way. So it's got to develop the illusion that it's separate because it has to then develop an understanding of its depth through interactions with others. Now, um, Freudian theory, psychoanalysis, talks about this in terms of what we call object relations, that at a certain point I leave being bound strictly by my drives and my instincts And I move into a mode where my relationships to objects, which include other people, becomes an important force in my own development. Now, our relationship to objects in the world are full of what we call either defense mechanisms or problematic situations. Because what the ego will do in an attempt to come to understand itself, this is a a weird thing, is it will engage in things like projections, uh, displacement. These are all defensive mechanisms of the ego, ways that the ego defends against things, but in so doing, actually puts itself in touch with things about which it has convinced itself doesn't exist. So the ego's floating around here thinking, I'm all there is, I'm all there is, but you're kind of a nasty person. And I got angry at you, but you're too powerful, so I'll hit you later. 
That's displacement. The ego also is what witnesses dreams. Now we dream all the time, even when we're awake, so-called. But the dreams we have at night are pretty constant. They're a physiological phenomenon. But the dreams we bring into waking life are brought there through a, an aspect of the ego. Because anything we're conscious of has to be about the ego. So dreams are something else that connect with the ego. Uh, parapraxis, which is slips of the tongue, you know, calling your mother-in-law Medea instead of Mary <laughs> might be an example of a parapraxis. And there are other mechanisms. Now, here again, these mechanisms, which are evidence of our individual state, because if we were truly unified with our core, these things wouldn't be possible. But as evidence of our individual state, not our individual state, we engage in all sorts of games like this. And we do it because psyche wants to be known. And if we have made the decision to think we're all ego and there's nothing else, then psyche will have to do something to make itself known. And human beings being what they are, psyche will have to create problems because human beings tend not to notice anything else. Yes? Why is it that we have to sever these ties? What is it that's motivating the ego to separate from the That's a mysterious fact. It seems to be part of the human condition. It's mirrored in the writings of mystics. It's mirrored in various schools of psychology. It seems that we have to separate from the self and develop a false sense of autonomy so that we can willingly reunite. So it, that's what uh, Marie-Louise von Franz would say is a just-so story. We have to. We might imagine it would be better if we didn't, but I think if we didn't, something would be lost. And maybe after this class, I don't know how familiar you are with Jungian theory, but Jung addressed this issue of why does this have to, have to happen through a consideration of the book of Job. And he wrote a paper called Answer to Job, which is a, it's a paper, but it's actually the size of a book. Um, and among other things, one of his conclusions is that the divine, which in psychological terms would be the deep part of psyche, needs our individual experience as much as we need the divine. So that in fact, through my life, through your life, through your, through everyone's life, the deep collective unconscious becomes changed, augmented, modified, enriched. And so because of that, there seems to be this inborn need to do this. Various other schools <clears throat> say very similar things about what human life is about. We have to create vibrations that feed the moon, for example might be one way of looking at it in some esoteric teachings. But the fact is, Jung is very clear that the life of the ego, the human life, my conscious life, has a purpose. Not just to do good for others, that's important, but it actually enriches the uh, collective unconscious from which it springs.
Yes. Uh, it is the psychological approach, it's the divine equivalent to self with a video. Yeah, uh, um, I'm going to answer your question this way. Jung probably believed that, that the self, capital S self, was what in a religious framework would be called God or the divine. But he was always very clear that he was a psychologist, not a theologian. However, in private interviews and even interviews that were taped, he does come very close to, to saying that. And if you substitute God or the divine or the holy or whatever for the self, it's going to be the same thing. Although Jung did have a difficulty with certain concepts of God. He felt, for example, that a concept of God as being all good, all powerful, all knowing, all loving, had by its very one-sidedness to give rise to the opposite. Because if, if God is too light, then you're forced to postulate darkness as some other principle. And Jung felt that led to a great deal of difficulty. But you're not going to be far wrong if you make that link up. Now, <clears throat> the truth of the matter is that the ego really doesn't just exist by itself. But we usually have to experience a certain amount of suffering before we're willing to admit that. We sure do. We really, you know, suffering. We should have a course in suffering. That was. It gives rise to wisdom. The wisdom tradition in scripture is the result of suffering, not the result of pleasure. You don't get wisdom at the height of Solomon's reign. You get wisdom five generations into the exile in Babylon. Very important. I don't like it either. I mean, I don't mind not like the rules by which we have to play, but you know we're here. So kick the ball. Okay. Now, in the course of its development, if the ego isn't too defended, like most of Western psychology, I love being able to editorialize, you know, and nobody yells. I do this at the university, they get very upset. Um, if, if the ego is willing at a certain point to say, oh, this hurts, something's not right here. Ah, if this is all it's about, you know, I don't know whether this is worth it then the ego can develop a vision and an understanding and a relationship with all that it left behind and all that it came from. And what it looks like happens is this. At first, the ego comes face to face with a layer of the psyche that is called the unconscious. And the ego, of course, is the complex of consciousness. And it is a tremendous accomplishment when the complex of consciousness on which we depend for our very existence recognizes by virtue of the fact that it is conscious but there are other factors that seem to impinge on it, that there must be something not conscious called the unconscious. When that happened, when that breakthrough occurred in the study of the psyche, that was the beginning 
of an understanding of the human spirit. And that's where Jung went, that's where Freud went, that's where Adler went, even though obviously as a Jungian I'm speaking from one of those windows. The fact of the existence of the unconscious is the remarkable thing. Because when something as bound as the ego begins to admit the existence of that, we're already 90% on the way to wholeness. So, the ego kind of recognizes there must be some factor, some forces, something going on that I don't have any control of over. I don't like it, but there seems to be this thing happening because I always fall into these behavior patterns or I always get into trouble this way. Or, I, you know, I'm married six times and I married the same person in six different bodies. You know, what is going on here? And when that happens, the ego can begin to develop a relationship that is both enriching and frightening. It's going to be enriching because all of a sudden the ego is going to realize I'm a lot more than I thought I was. Whew, there's a lot going on in me. But the ego is also going to be frightened because the ego will become relativized. Because all of a sudden that complex of consciousness that wanted to feel that it ruled the world will have to start admitting we're not the only ones here. <laughs> And that's pretty scary because almost everybody else that's there is more powerful than the ego. Okay, now the unconscious is full of, as we spoke before, complexes. And everybody's got them. And complexes, as we spoke before, are based on personal experience. And the content of a complex in large part is composed of material images, feelings, thoughts that the ego at one time had awareness of, even if it's just a blip of an awareness. But then it got thrust down, to use this geographic metaphor, thrust down into the unconscious because the ego simply couldn't deal with it all. So that things that we think we've forgotten actually are just repressed because the ego can't continue to entertain awareness of that. So all of these complexes, this is complex one, complex two, complex three, you know, we can have an inferiority complex, we can have a mother complex. I hate to keep coming back to that, but that's the big one, you know. To this day, I think my mother feels I've betrayed all motherhood by becoming an analyst. Because when I mentioned to her that that was what I wanted to be, she said, oh sure, they teach everybody it's the mother's fault. <laughs> Which in a way is true, you know, because that is the first relationship, but that wasn't, of course, my motivation. Far from it. But anyway, there's a mother complex, there's a father complex, there would be maybe a, a grandiose complex, an inferiority complex, or whatever. And these complexes are as individual as our fingerprints. And they're composed in large part, and I repeat that phrase because that's not all that's there, in large part with personal experiences that we repress, suppress, sublimate, reaction formate against all of those wonderful little defense mechanisms that we all learned about in general psychology. Now, in uh, Freudian theory, in standard psychoanalytic theory, 
That's all the unconscious is. It's a cesspool of material that the ego couldn't, wouldn't, or didn't deal with that got pushed down and that comes up in terms of symptoms. And the goal of therapeutic work or analytic work is to somehow understand the origin of the complexes by going back in the person's history to the time where the complex first was formed. See the complex for what it is, an acknowledgement that the ego wasn't strong enough at that time to deal with primarily the desire to kill one parent and marry the other, okay? And once you can understand that, then the complex can release its hold and become less uh, of a problem. That's the goal in standard psychoanalytic theory. And it would work if the complex really were only uh, filled with personal experience. But what Jung discovered is that the problems that plague us, the difficulties that plague us, are not just based on material that the ego was aware of, but then pushed into the unconscious. But in fact, there are things in the unconscious about which the ego never was aware. So Jung said, we just can't talk about the unconscious, but the unconscious has to have a couple of levels. So this level, Jung called the personal unconscious. And the personal unconscious is full of complexes. But underneath, and again, we're using a spatial model. There's no underneath necessarily. Are all of these deintegrates of the self, all of the archetypes, and I'm going to use even a different shape for them so that there's no mistake. And the archetypes seem to be, in a way, precursors of egoic experience and precursors of complexes. And they're precursors of egoic experience because, first of all, the ego itself is built on an archetype. But also, they're precursors of egoic experience because they are the deintegrates of the self, and the self is prior to the ego. And this layer of the unconscious, Jung called the collective unconscious. Now, my personal unconscious is, whoops, Jesus, how are we doing? Okay. <laughs> Take choreography classes. No, you're, you're fine. I just have to, maybe if I hold it, then I won't trip on it. Um, Whereas the personal unconscious is completely unique in each individual. The collective unconscious is absolutely not. And at the level of the collective unconscious, all of us are connected. It's because of the existence of the collective unconscious that we can have experiences of synchronicity, which is something else that Jung talked about and we'll talk about a little bit more in detail a little bit later. It's because of the collective unconscious that we can connect with different cultures at all, that we can connect with different periods in history at all. Because at this level, 
We are connected to all past, all future. In fact, those distinctions have no meaning at this level. Time, space, all of that is a function of the ego, not of the collective unconscious. And at the center of the collective unconscious, really at the center of the personality itself, is the self. So the ego, you see, wants to be the center of the world. What it's really doing is unconsciously mirroring its archetypal core, which is the center. Yes. Oh, yes. Right, right. Psyche would include all of this. Yeah. Yes. You're going to get to the paradox real quickly. If you trace Jung's writings on the self, you'll find that it ends up being as mysterious as Nicholas of Cusa, who said God is a, cent a circle whose center is everywhere and whose circumference is nowhere or the other way around, but it, you, because what is posited of the self is so large, it's impossible to contain it, because it both encloses all of our experience and is prior to all of our experience as an, and is ulterior to all of our experience. Um, the self is first cause, final cause, initial cause, material cause. I mean, no matter what system, Aristotelian, Platonic, whatever, the self has a place in it. And it's problematic from the point of view of Western psychology to have such a thing, which is why no other school of, of psychology in the West even comes close. Jung first wrote about the self and first used the word self in a monograph that he wrote in 1926 which was a commentary on an alchemical, uh, a Chinese alchemical text. Jung was very excited by the translation of this text called The Secret of the Golden Flower. And when Jung read it, he saw in it something that, that allowed him to understand something about the way the psyche worked that he had not found in his studies of psychiatry and psychology. And when he wrote the commentary on The Secret of the Golden Flower, and this is still available today, uh, both the commentary and the, the work itself, that was the first time in print that he used the, the word self and spoke about the self. Yes? I'm sorry. That's okay. I'm going back a couple of steps before you wrote in the first one on the ego was just there, and you said there was, uh, the ego cut gets to a point where it says, you know, this is not all there is. Mm -hmm. um, theoretically, how early in life could that occur? Depends on when you first notice the pain. The pain, the of, pain of being uh, isolated. Being you know, in this fantasy of uh, isolation and aloneness. Mm -hmm. There are some people that never do. But some people could very early, very early on. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And that could create a great sense of isolation if they don't know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. There, you know, and it, I don't want to make any broad statements, but there has to be something that sustains people who undergo extreme, extremely abusive situations early in life. And what sustains them, I believe, and in my work with such people, is the self. So there's some awareness for the ones that survive and thrive later that there's something else. Um, and depending on how hostile or um, damaging the environment is, that connection may or may not be severed. And why, why some people become aware of this at, at some time and others at other times, I don't know. Yeah. Hmm. Every religious tradition has something that reflects this structure in some way. And that's really a miraculous to me because the traditions are all so different. And Jung was not interested, and neither are Jungians, in reducing all religions to a single religion. Because they're all different maps. They're mapping the same territory, but they're all different maps. And the maps are colored as much by the personal experience of the culture. So, you know, these, these um, activities where we take, you know, this goddess is this goddess is this god. That'll work sometimes. But then there are places where religious traditions can't be synchronized. But you're still mapping the same territory. Right, yes. Mm. Okay, yeah. I don't know that there's been time in the history of analyzing that text, but there's an excellent translation of the text in uh, published by Shambhala that was translated by the Clearies, you know them? Thomas and some other Cleary. They're... they're uh, um, Orientalists who have translated many Oriental texts. And they're so prolific that I wanted to think they were like 80. And recently I saw a picture. You know, and I want to ask them, do you have your ID and does your mother know you're out? <laughs> so they must be brilliant people. But they have a translation of The Secret of the Golden Flower, Shambhala Press. They should have it in the bookstore. And then Jung's commentary is in the collected works. And I would advise, if you want to read The Secret of the Golden Flower, to get the Cleary translation, because the other translation is by um, either Wilbur or Baines, I can't remember. But it's, it's an excellent translation for its time. But, you know, we, our understanding has moved, and it's a little ponderous. But it's about circulation of the light, and, you know, there's pictures in there. It's... Um, Especially if you've studied any kind of mystical tradition from the West, you're going to be interested to see how um, resonant it is with those traditions. <clears throat> so here's the situation. We have all of this stuff going on. And the ego <clears throat> begins to say, What's, what is this? Why, ow. You know, this hurts. Why does this have to be like that? And the ego begins walking the path of individuation. 
Now, walking the path of individuation has nothing to do with erasing all of this and going back to a state where there's just ego. Neither does it have anything to do with erasing ego and just having a situation where it's only self. There are religious traditions that could go both ways. But that's not what Jung teaches. Jungian psychology is interested in awareness, understanding, and the development of meaning. Not about erasing anything. So when people say, well, I just want to be over with this complex so it never bothers me again. Okay, we can get you to the point maybe where it rarely bothers you, but we're never going to erase it. And if anybody tells you they can, run the other way. Because they can't. There might be some factor of healing within the psyche that could do that. But that isn't something that another person can promise you. But what we can promise is awareness. I remember when I was in my first analysis and there was a point where whew, I was certainly becoming aware and things weren't real wonderful. And I remember saying to my analyst, you know, I'm doing all this work, I'm not happy. <laughs> and my analyst said, I never said anything about happy. We said conscious, not happy. And that was a big lesson for me. I didn't like it, but it was a good lesson because happy, what's happy? You know, you can get happy in a bottle, but conscious is something else. And if you can get conscious, then you can stop a lethal event before it, it goes too far. Happy, sometimes you can't. So what we can do is develop consciousness and we begin to develop a relationship between the ego and all of the layers of the unconscious. Now, how do we do this? Yes? Yeah. We develop consciousness by becoming aware of how unconscious we are. We develop consciousness by waking up, sometimes only for this little bit, to the fact that we have just been acting out of a complex. Right. We become conscious when we look in our date book and we say, oh, I'm meeting Joe for lunch today. I hate him. Who made this appointment? And we realize we made the appointment, but a different part of us made the appointment. It's just that now another part of us has to fulfill the appointment. And we don't want to do that. You know. So we, we reach the point where we want to start becoming conscious. We want to start moving along the pathway of individuation. So why don't we take a break? All right, now, the question is, how do we begin to uh, walk the path of individuation? How do we begin to pull all of this together? Well, there are a couple of directions that we go. One is backwards, the other is inwards. And it involves the ego willingly developing a relationship to the products of the unconscious rather than trying to shun them. So that the ego develops a relationship to dreams. The ego develops a relationship to daydreams. All of the things that we're taught as good little girls and boys to ignore or not to trust. It develops a relationship to, uh, as I said before, parapraxies to projection, to displacement, 
to any time, type of somatizing, I'll explain what each of these means, to synchronicity, and all of these go toward relativizing the ego. This is a term that Jung used. Putting the ego in its place in a positive sense. Now, I have an interesting story about that word, relativize the ego. I was writing a little paper for this discussion group that I belong to on an ego. Well, when the person was putting it together for publication, their spell check must have done something. And instead of relativize the ego, they wrote down revitalize, which is the same letters only changed around. And I liked it. I never bothered correcting it. Because that really is what relativizing the ego does. It revitalizes it. It brings new life. Because the ego lives for a good time thinking it's all up to me. And at the moment when it makes this brilliant deduction that it's really not all up to me because I'm not all there is here. In fact, I'm a fairly insignificant part of what's here. It becomes revitalized because it's like it's, it's had all of these savings accounts accruing interest for years and years and years. And now it found all the past books. And it has to go back and get the interest and the principal. I should have had an MBA. <laughs> I like it. Okay. Now, we, we have all of these, and it really involves taking all of these seriously. And these, as I said, are all the things that we would like to dismiss. Dreams, dreams, they're epiphenomena. It's just something that happens when you sleep. Yes? Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Shift, change. There, there are. You know, we're not getting into a lot of the controversies, but one, one controversial area is: Do we all have access to the same archetypes? And that's, you know, I don't know how you answer that one, but I think the newly emerging archetypal patterns is precisely about this. If people live their experience consciously, that consciousness goes in, just as it can come out, and I think can re. Um, organize the uh, structure of the collective unconscious. But not everyone believes. That is generally the hallmark of feminist Jungian theory in particular. The idea that conscious experience can reorganize this heavily patriarchal, because if we look at the myths of the world, they tend to be heavily patriarchal. A lot of that is an accident of history because the non-patriarchal stuff either wasn't written down or was burned. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, but, but that, there are some people that would go that way. Daydreams are something else that, you know, we're talking, it's just a daydream, my mind's wandering. Well, in order to reconnect, well, let's follow that daydream. Why are you having that daydream now? Just when I started talking about your aunt. Isn't it interesting? I talk about her and you start having a daydream about your old Ford. Wonder if there's a connection. You know, Jungians are just crazy enough to think there might be. Parapraxy slip of the tongue. It's a big one. 
You know, let's pay attention to that. Oh, you know, I didn't really mean to call you by my brother's name, but you did. What does that mean? Uh, projection. Projection is, <clears throat> you know, there's always like one or two things in every field. I think the hologram is it in physics. Everyone thinks, oh, the hologram, what a wonderful thing. Now I know all about physics. And people pick up projection. And they say, oh, projection, oh, that's wonderful. I know all about psychology. And they use projection like it's a bad thing. Oh, you're projecting. That's right, I'm not dead. I will always project, you know, that's kind of the way we're made. The key is not believing the projection, and the key is projecting in a relationship that has enough trust that you can work the projection out. See, if you say to someone, you're projecting, I'm never going to talk to you, you've just lost a tremendous opportunity for both of you to become a little more conscious, not only of the projection, but more importantly of each other. Because, oh, you're not going to wear that mask. Oh, well, then I guess I better figure out who the hell you are. And we become, that's what intimacy is about. We get closer and closer to who the other person is through projecting and then taking them back and projecting and taking them back. Yeah. information um, <clears throat> but projection also is useful because what we project is going to be connected to complex material and that's going to get us access to the collective unconscious as well displacement we talked about you know I get angry at somebody but they're too powerful I can't really express it to them so I go home and I kick the television set that would be an example of displacement somatizing is when we put the unconscious material in our body and we develop an illness or we develop a pain. Now, I do not believe that we create every illness because I don't know that we're that powerful. And I think that there's a tendency in some New Age materials to blame people for having an illness. I mean, SH happens, huh? You know, it's not, it's not always that I'm doing something. However, everything that does happen, I feel, can disclose meaning to us. And that's a little bit different. So that's where somatizing is important. You know, if, I don't know, I'm trying to think. I have a knee, my right knee, it's a mess. You know, I was just in Mexico a few days ago. We were going up the steps at the Guadalupe Shrine, you know. <laughs> steps, it's a mountain. By the time you get up there, you can't talk. No wonder you're speechless, it's not spiritual. <laughs> Who can breathe, you know? But it was interesting, and my knee started bugging me. And I tried to get some meaning out of it. I didn't because I was too busy trying to survive and not have a heart attack. But there's got to be something there for me, you know. I could. Oh, is that how you do it? I wonder because then they have people that like crawl up. That's their penance. Yeah, I know. I don't know. I think I worked off a few years in purgatory just doing that. I don't know what I would do if I. But somatizing, so I could, even though I might not want to say, you know, I've, I've caused this 
to be. I can get some meaning out of it, maybe. At times when it hurts, I might go in and ask myself, what is this? What might be going on? What images come up? We'll talk about that when we do active imagination. And then synchronicity is a big one. That's where coincidences happen. And you know they have meaning, but you're not quite sure what it is, but you know there's something in this moment that we just can't explain away as coincidence, one of those things, you know, we can't explain it. There's something in the moment that is conveying meaning to us. There's a book out called The Celestine Prophecy. Maybe some of you have read it. <laughs> a group of Jungians who wouldn't have read it. Um, but I, what I think is interesting about that book is there's nothing in it I think that's new, but it's taken everything by storm because I think it gives some voice to, I don't think it's a particularly well-written book, but it says things I think people need to hear. And I think that's the uh, importance of that book. And a big thing that it hits, of course, is synchronicity. The idea that in the moment, there is something that we have to discern. And by becoming sensitive to that, we wake up in the moment and become able to take from the moment much more than we would if we just sort of breeze through as though the moment didn't matter. Okay, now what do we do with all this stuff? Well, what happens is the ego becomes aware of these things, and it begins to ask, okay, what is giving rise to these things? And the ego begins first to investigate the complexes. Or another way to say it is, what part of you is giving you that dream? What part of you is making you make that slip of the tongue? What part of you is giving you that um, body symptom? And we begin to ask by going first back in our history to try to discover when have you ever felt that way before? You know, you had a dream where you were meeting somebody and you were afraid to meet them, but you knew you had to. Have you ever had that feeling before? What was that like? And we begin to go back into history and do what Jung called a reductive analysis. And this is very Freudian. Let's seek the cause in our own lifetime of these complexes. What set them up? Why are you afraid of snakes? Why don't you like being in, in uh, small, dark rooms? Why do you uh, insist on second-guessing yourself every time you, you know you're, you're right. All of those kind of troublesome things. Let's go back. And sometimes this work can be very painful, surprisingly so, because you have a dream that you think means nothing. And then somebody says, well, you know, just kind of tell me, tell me what, what it was like in that dream when you walked into that white room. And you get flooded with affect and a memory that you never really knew that you had before, but the dream was an entry into it. That aspect of, of any kind of inner work connects us to the complexes for the goal of understanding them, getting meaning, and making it less likely that the complex will take over and cause you to act out of something other than your conscious ego, which happens all the time anyway. I mean, don't anybody ever think that you're, you will ever get to the point where this won't be a problem. But what happens is you begin to make hay on it faster. <laughs> but then, you know, I, I wish that 
you know, after so many years, then you wouldn't have to. But it, the, the complexes are there. But what happens, you see, is the complexes, when they become powerful, the ego's here going, hello, I'm the ego, how you doing? And, but the ego does things. It gets hungry, it gets tired. It, it you know, wants to do other things. It gets distracted. And the complex starts, you know, someone's over there that reminds me of my Aunt Lucy, and I know what she used to do to me. And the ego gets punched out of the way, and for a while the complex takes over. It's kind of like, you know, negative channeling. Da, 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 da. And it gets you in trouble. And then the complex spent goes back, and the ego goes, Hi, hi why is everyone angry? <laughs> you know, what did I do? You misunderstand me. And what the ego doesn't realize is it's been out. And somebody else walked in and talked through their mouth. And the complexes do this because the ego's weak. But as the ego begins to admit, boy, there's a lot going on here, I better be very vigilant, then the ego becomes less likely to be out so long. So the ego might get caught. You might get caught in a complex. You might go, you did what? You, wait, okay, look, I'm really angry. I know it's probably not just about this, okay, but I just can't talk about it. So what happens is you fall into complex, but the ego comes back and can make reparations sooner. Now, you're not going to come back and go, aha, I know. But you'll begin to realize, uh-oh, you know, something's happening here that's way out of proportion to what really is going on. And I have to take responsibility for it. And that's the beginning of consciousness. Because what you're saying is, yeah, I'm not always home. But when I come back and things are messy, I come back earlier and start cleaning sooner. And then things don't have to fall into disarray quite so quickly. Now, we begin to work on complexes in the personal unconscious, and that gets us somewhere. But there's a certain point where you have to ask, is this all there is? Because why these complexes? Why are they so powerful? I mean, surely, if I go through one more time the story about how my mother left me locked in the backyard next door and wouldn't let me out because she didn't want me to play anymore, I will vomit. And I'm not getting anywhere. Well, then we have to look at what lies beneath that at the level of the myth, at the level of the collective unconscious. So this is where, remember I said, first we work in one direction going back, and then we work another direction going deep. And the going deep is where we take these very same um, bits of material, but instead of just stopping at the complex, we then say, and this complex is related to what? Archetype. And this complex is related to what? And we begin to develop an understanding of how, you know, and sometimes a couple of complexes can be related to the same, but we, we begin to develop an understanding of the archetypal ground of our suffering. So that not only do we reduce the complexes by going back in our history, but we also do what Jung called amplification. And amplification is where we take an experience, a memory, a complex discharge, and we try to find a mythological, religious, archetypal, collective 
uh, mirror for that experience. So if we always find ourselves, for example, desperately in need of serving the mother, then maybe we need to look at some of the myths of the great mother. What are we caught in? How much like Hera was my mother that I have to propitiate her lest I be castrated or turned into stone or a tree or a bush or a flower or all the other things that Hera managed to to uh, do. Um, if I'm extremely egocentric to the point of being narcissistic, what about the myth of Narcissus? And what about the relationships that Narcissus had or non-relationships with other people? And how do I reproduce that in my life if that's my operative archetypal ground? Or if my archetypal ground is Achilles and I'm enraged constantly? What does the myth of Achilles tell me? If I read the Iliad, can I get some insight into how I'm trapped? Can I get some insight into how I can break free? That's the goal of amplification. That's the purpose of art for people who want to take funding away. It's because we're not human fully if we can't connect with that level. It won't happen. It can't. And you can go the other way, too. You could say, you know, if I want to change my life, I'm going to read some myths. I'm going to see if there's not another way I can live. That's the foundation of any religion, isn't it? We go back to our stories, the origin of us. And then I try to embody that origin in how I live and how I relate. So that we can work going this way, too. And disempower the complexes because we find something bigger or something greater or something that will allow our personal memories to accrete in a different way. What if I wasn't always the bad boy? What if I could think of myself as the prodigal son? Which means I can come back and I can, I can be loved again. Oh, that can change it. That can change my history by getting another context from this level. I can rewrite it. Not changing the events, but changing the spin. There's another hand, yeah. That's a good question. <clears throat> yeah. Jung, about the last part, Jung didn't speak directly. Uh, but the first part, the question of what is soul and what is spirit in Jung has been debated, written about. It would appear that soul is the experience of the embodied spirit, which I suppose helps a little on a good day. But I just said it and I thought, yeah, and that means what, James? <laughs> but, but you seem satisfied. I'm going to go with but that it, this is an area where we get involved in some of the murky aspects of Jung's theory for this reason. Jung was a product of his times, as are we all. And one of the aspects of Jungian theory that is heavily criticized now is the very strong relationships, that uh, very strong um, characterizations that Jung gives to masculine and feminine. 
That's one of the problems with the theory of the anima and the animus, which we'll also talk about as the class goes on. Um, Jung was very, you know, there are certain qualities that are feminine, certain qualities that are masculine, and we don't believe that anymore. At least not as strongly as he did. And one of the, the things was he wrote in some places that spirit is masculine and soul is the feminine aspect of that. And Right, it's building from that, exactly. But what happened is there was a tendency in Jung's writings to concretize that in a way that many of us are uncomfortable with now. So that's why the question of soul and spirit is a problematic one now. It wasn't necessarily problematic for Jung because he wrote from a tradition that was very comfortable assigning gender roles to those. We're less comfortable. So that's why it's, it's a problem. But in terms of the age of the soul, I don't think Jung said anything directly. Uh, certainly not in his writings, although he, you know, he talked about a certain perspicacity of soul, a certain quality of perceptiveness, but I think he would probably relate that more to his typological theory than to any idea of an old soul. Yeah. I think he discussed it you know, as a possible explanation because it is an archetypal interpretation of experience, but he never came down hard one way or the other. He spent so much of his life fighting his Christian roots, and especially his father complex, that as embodied, you know, his father was a minister that had lost his faith. All of this is in um, Memories, Dreams, and Reflections, which is why it's good to read that, because you realize Jung was writing a theory to save his life. That was why he did his work. Um, but uh, Jung was very connected. There, there was a tendency in Jung to be heavily Christian, even though he tried to break out of that. And at one time he did say it's impossible for someone truly to change their religion. What they can do is get other perspectives. But a complete change, he felt, was very difficult, if not impossible. Uh, and that also is a product of his time, because there was the East and the West, and, you know, the, it was very different then. Um, but I don't want to lose my train of thought short, though the train may be. Uh, Soul, spirit. Uh, it's not there yet. Yeah. Where's shadow? Shadow's down here. Yeah. All of those. Will t I'm sorry. Where's what? Myths. Thank you. Right. That myths can help us amplify what's going on down here. I would say if I had to say where's soul, where's spirit, I would do something like this, which is a big cop-out, but I want to include the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Oh, well. Division? <laughs> or Buddhists are very Jungian. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, a complex is feeling Right. The official definition of a complex is a feeling tone set of ideas and images. So it can be both cognitive, imagistic, right and left brain, all that. Uh, and the feeling tone 
is not so much emotional as it's the quality that binds it. Yeah, yeah, it's that quality. Although non-sensate people can have complexes, obviously. That's right. That's very true. Mm -hmm. That's it. We fall into complex very easily. The key is having an ego strong enough to admit that that's what's happened. That's the key. That's right. Oh, yeah, right. You know, there is a difference between acting out and, and, and enactment. And we talk about that at the third uh, class meeting. But not everything we do that enacts a complex is acting out. Yeah. You concerned a little while ago about awakening. Now, do you mean by that coming out of a complex? Mm -hmm. Right, right. These complex, yes, go ahead. You connected a self. Oh, yeah, because we're not done. Oh, sorry. <laughs> That's, don't be sorry. Okay. Any other? <laughs> and what myth might that be? All right. Now, she actually brought us to the, as we move here toward um, connecting everything up here, what we're not remembering, because the ego does tend to be a lot bigger, it seems, than the other complexes, is the ego is itself a complex, and it needs to be connected to something. And the ego, in the process of walking the path of individuation, develops a connection to its archetypal core, which is the self. And the goal of doing, work of, do, doing the work of individuation is the establishment and the maintenance of the ego-self axis. The goal of Jungian work is the establishment and maintenance of the ego-self axis. That's the ultimate relativization of the ego and also the ultimate revitalization. Because the ego once again reconnects with its source, but does so consciously. See, when we're born, the ego is engulfed in the source, isn't it? The ego it doesn't even exist. All there is is source. And then the ego breaks free, as do all the other deintegrates of the self, <clears throat> and sort of thrusts itself on the forefront of everything. I'm going to run it now. I'm the ego. And when I establish my ego, I imagine I have an identity. I have unity. I am an individual. Now all I am is a cork floating on the ocean going, I'm all there is, I'm all there is, I'm all there is. And sooner or later you get wet. The unconscious comes up and you realize what's going on. And then the ego has the opportunity to cease being isolated, to cease this illusion that it is in fact a unity. And it begins to realize how it's a broken bit that has the potential for reuniting. And that's what all of the work is about, is establishing and maintaining. Now that's important because it isn't a once and for all thing. 
when you reconnect the ego to the self through the ego self axis it's not like oh that's done let's go have a beer <laughs> there's constant work that needs to be done to maintain that connection and there are times when you've all felt it the ego wants to act as though damn it there weren't anything but me we've all felt that right some religions would call that sin in analytical psychology we just call that acting out of a complex we really have no use for sin what we have a use for is consciousness but it's the same deal it's when you act as though you were not part of the whole when you act as though all there is is the ego then you get in trouble mm-hmm yes or you get thrust so deeply into it that it isn't a matter of developing the connection as it is redeveloping a sense of separateness see relationship yeah you get the dynamic relationship is what we want not merger and not total separateness but relationship because to the extent that I am embodied and I say my name is Ken I am not the self but when I start to think I'm all there is I'm in big trouble now there are experiences in our lives and you've talked about them the border experiences birth death uh, love are the big borders in human life they thrust us deeply into this so it isn't so much that we're separated from it as we're so immersed in it there is no relationship anymore and little by little we work our way out and if we're lucky we can begin to value what it is we've experienced and valuing includes mourning because mourning in a sense is valuing an experience and you know giving it its true value telling it its true worth the true worth of this loss is such that I must mourn that I must grieve and that's as important as rejoicing but it involves a relationship not an immersion you know if you've and everyone in here because if you live longer than five minutes you experience profound loss everyone in here has experienced a profound loss and don't you remember how maybe two or three years down the road after that loss it could wash over you like it was just yesterday and sometimes you feel more about it than at the time it actually happened because what happens when a, a severe loss happens is you're thrust so deeply into the material that there is no experiencing of it there's only a being in it but with the distance of time which is a function of the ego you begin to gain that distance and then in the relationship to it it hits you and that that really has more to do with making this connection and living it than anything else right let's let's see if we can't put that because of course there's me there's you know you there's those guys over there <laughs> and what we try to do of course is connect this way 
So what we also have to realize is there's a lot of other connections going on, which leads me to another famous Jungian diagram, which, if my media would work, well, I can erase this now, right? It's just so pretty, but I'll erase it. Okay, because that, that question is very important because it shows how little there is to this thing that we have called privacy. Now, privacy is really an invention of the ego, and it's a fantasy, but it's an invention of the ego so that we can get up out of bed in the morning and go to work. Because if we really felt fully the truth about privacy or the lack of it, we'd all be so embarrassed we'd want to crawl under a rock. At least the ego would. Some of these are jokes. I hope people are laughing. You're real nervous when you're serious. Okay. Here we have me and you. We're two egos, huh? Now, in our ego fantasy, this is what relationship is. There's me and there's you. But there's all kinds of relationships here. First of all, I know that me has an unconscious. And you have an unconscious too. And if we do our work and we walk on the path of individuation, we want to establish this kind of relationship. So while I'm relating me to you, I'm also relating me to my unconscious, and you are relating you to your unconscious. But there's more. I have a certain insight into your unconscious. And your unconscious has a certain insight into me that you're not conscious of. And vice versa. My unconscious has a certain insight into you, and you have a certain insight into my unconscious that I don't know about. So far, so good, but here's the really scary part. My unconscious can relate to your unconscious, and your unconscious can relate to my unconscious, and we're both unconscious of it. And that's the one we don't like, because that's the one that says we're all connected at some level all the time. And when you suffer, I suffer. And when you thrive, I thrive. This is the biggest problem in getting people to understand what it means to be connected to the unconscious and trying to individuate. Because what it means is we have to recognize that we connect with people in ways that we don't even know and in ways that they don't even know. And at that level, we're at a very dangerous place when we start talking about mine and yours. You know, and you know those. You're all psychologically astute. Now, is this my stuff or your stuff? <laughs> if you could figure that one out, Annie, you'd be God. <laughs> you know, that's, don't even start that. Yes? When I uh, would argue with you, I pretty much thought the only way and 
I don't know that he ever talked about clearing, although he did, especially, I made an allusion earlier to uh, Jung, Jung was preoccupied with certain things, at least up to Freud's death. Freud's death, because Freud really took a great deal of Jung's father complex through projection. Jung projected it onto Freud. And there really is a marked contrast in Jung's writings prior to Freud's death. And I always get this wrong. Freud died in either 37 or 39. I know it's an odd-numbered year toward the end of the 30s, whichever one it is. After Freud's death, Jung began to publish his writings on alchemy. Prior to that, I think Jung was still very, very invested in letting Freud know, I'm just as good as you. Maybe, although Jung would, at that point, his own school of psychology had taken, you know, was doing fine. But I think there still was this, you know, I still want to be part of the fold. I still need to prove that what I'm doing is part of psychoanalysis. With Freud's death, that he was released a little bit from that. And he starts writing about alchemy. And what he believed about the alchemists were, was that through projection into the material that they used, they were attempting to, he didn't use the word, but cleanse their souls. They were attempting to um, make gold from lead, basically, which I think would be the alchemical um, translation of clearing the soul or clearing the psyche. So that Jung did talk about that and talk about the importance of being in the fire but also, I think this level came in because, in fact, this diagram, uh, Jung developed as a result of his, his study of a certain set of alchemical plates called the Rosarium Philosophorum, the Rosary of the Philosophers, uh, which were pictures that depicted stages in the archetype, uh, stages in the uh, alchemical work. And Jung saw in these pictures a mirror of what happens in uh, analytic work. And in that article, which is called Psychology of the Unconscious, or Psychology of the Transference, um, Jung comes up with this diagram as an attempt to understand the dynamics. So for him, this connection was part of the fact that when you work alchemically, you really are at the mercy of the material. And there's things going on at that level that we're completely unaware of, we the alchemist. And sometimes it's a botched job and you have to go back and do it again. And that would be more at this level, I think. Which also gets back to your issue about, you know, there's a whole non-human realm that we have to respect because it has life too. And it has the rules that it plays by. Yes. think that all of these are different mythic translations of the same truth, yeah. yeah. And I, again, I want to emphasize, I don't mean that, that in a reductive way. I think that it is important that we select a mythic structure to follow. Jung was very clear about this. He did it in terms of religion. But he felt that if people could re-embrace or embrace anew a religious tradition that was meaningful for them, the work of individuation went along much more smoothly because religious traditions give us containers that we otherwise are forced to make ourselves. 
but that would also be true of any mythic. So it isn't that I say, well, they're all sort of mapping the same territory, so you don't need them at all. Quite the opposite. Because they're all mapping the same territory, you need either once and for all or at various points of your life to hook up with mythic or religious traditions that name your experience and contain it so that you can further the, the role of, or the uh, activity of individuation. Yes? Yes, that's right, you can. This work is risky. Absolutely, it's risky. Right. And no, you're saying it. But also, living as though this dimension didn't exist is lethal and off base, too. And I mean, no disrespect, I think it's very sad that those people died. But there's a lot of people walking around that are living dead because they don't have any connection to this dimension at all. And it's dangerous. It's very dangerous. because, And there are certain um, cautions that you can give people. If anything becomes a cult of a person, you're in trouble. And that's just one little, you know. But the fact is, life's risky. And living life at this dimension is very risky. But most people, when they when they embrace looking at things from the point of view of individuation, have realized the other way is even riskier. Because the emptiness that faces you, if you think this is all there is, you know, unless you're Peggy Lee and can make a lot of money on that song, you have got to get something else going for you. You know? The Rosarian Philosophorum, it just means Rosary of the Philosophers. Which is a series of 20 pictures. See, a lot of, in the Middle Ages, although the alchemists were very learned and could read, they had helpers who couldn't, because not everybody was literate. And so a lot of the secrets were written, were, were uh, recorded in the form of pictures. And the Rosarium is a series of 20 pictures that, that uh, outlines the alchemical work of transformation. And Jung took the... F yeah, it is. Well, it is, but it's... That's what it is, right? Because that's what lead into gold is about. Yeah. Um, but... The Rosarium, Jung took the first ten pictures plus an eleventh one from the second set of ten and used them to explain stages in uh, analytic work. And this diagram first came out of Jung's attempt to explain what happens in the transference, which is just a special example of projection. This is in volume 16 of the collected works. It's a uh, chapter in volume six, well, it's a, a chunk of volume 16. Uh, I just want to go back to uh, what you said with the goal of the Indian work, the establishment and maintenance, maintenance of right, self-access. Self right. Um, in your experience, through the Indian work, is, are there people who have been able to do that? Sure. To establish and maintain it, yes. Would mean to have a kind of self-awareness mm -hmm. in every moment? No. Not in every moment. 
No. I, I misunderstood you. There, there are people who, who establish and maintain it, but it's not constant. It can't be. So we keep drifting off. That's right. Sleep. Exactly. Right. Right. And that, I think, is also an honest aspect of Jung's theory, that he really never anywhere made the statement that you do this and once and for all it's done. And I think that's very true. Yeah, it's a moment when you're fully present in the moment, and you don't need a lot to make you want more. That's the key, because those moments of awakening have they sort of store energy almost, and they give you a taste for it. Yes, and then that will be the last one because then we'll have to close up. If um, sin is not sin but a conflict, how do you, how does Jung uh, or this school of psychology deal with the concept of evil? That's a very important question, and that gets into um, when we talk about dreams, we're going to look more fully at the landscape of the collective unconscious because there are certain invariants. You know, no one has ever fully mapped the archetypes, but there are certain invariants in psyche, the shadow, the persona, the anima and the animus, and the self are four invariants in psyche. And the question of evil is connected with the question of the shadow, which is composed of all of those qualities of being that although I could embody them, I have chosen not to make wrong and then tend to project on someone else uh, and then I usually have to fight that person because I can't bear the existence of those so-called evil elements but then there's another layer that is ontic evil that goes beneath the layer of the shadow right and that's been a problematic in Jungian theory ontic evil evil just in itself not O-N-T-I-C. It's like, it's like primal evil. Right, right. And that's more problematic in Jungian theory. But there have been some studies on that we can talk about. Okay, let's call it a night. I'll see you next week, same time. This podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it all you like as long as you maintain the attribution to the speaker, but please do not change it or sell it. If you like this episode, tell your friends about us or leave us a review on iTunes. For more information about classes, training programs, videos, audio, this podcast, or to find a Jungian analyst near you, visit our website, www.jungchicago.com. Dot org.